What's up, everyone? Hello, hello. Happy Friday. Welcome back to another episode of Space Talk. I'm your host, Athena Brensberger. Uh, some of you might know me as Astro Athens um, from either my website or some social media. Uh, but either way, really happy that you guys are here listening to this episode of my very first podcast. Um, so I decided to change up today's episode once again on a whim last minute um, to be something about something a little bit more recent that is in the news. And if you aren't following what's happening at uh, any of the NASA space flight centers, uh, you might not know, but the Artemis mission rocket known as the Space Launch System or SLS because NASA loves their acronyms, um, had a rollout yesterday. And uh, the rollout is where it exits the vehicle assembly building, which is probably the biggest building at the uh, NASA Kennedy Space Center facility down in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Really, really cool. Um, you guys should definitely go down there sometime if you ever can and check it out. Maybe try to schedule a tour. I got to go on the roof once, which was really, really awesome. Um, and that is where they assemble the rockets. Uh, so that's where the space shuttles used to be. That is where the uh, Saturn Vs during the Apollo mission used to be. And that is where the space launch system was also assembled. And it had a rollout yesterday where it goes on this massive base with giant wheels called the crawler. It moves at a fast speed of one mile per hour. So it <laughs> moves very slowly. And that is typically when it will roll out of the vehicle assembly building, travel all across uh, the Cape, go past the causeway, and then uh, go to the launch pad. And then that's usually when it'll get ready for launch. Now this usually happens about 24 hours before launch. But the space launch system is not launching in 24 hours. The estimated launch date should be sometime no earlier than June is what I've been finding online since all my resources have been telling me. Uh, but they are going to be doing probably some propellant tests soon. So they want to like load all the liquid uh, uh, rocket fuel on it. They want to test the engines. They're going to want to probably do some static fire tests, which is just testing the engines. It just sounds a little bit fancier. Um, but it does stay in place, which is, I guess, why it's called static fire, because it stays static. It doesn't move. Um, and this is a really important thing. You want to make sure that not only the rocket is performing uh, nominally, which is a term you'll probably hear a lot if you go catch the launch of the space launch system. Anomaly is is basically think normal, uh, as Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut, likes to just, he has a, he has a hat that says normal. Uh, <laughs> but uh, really important when it comes to rockets, you're going to want to test it out, make sure it's performing properly, uh, make sure that the flame trenches, which are these massive, like 100 foot caves that are carved out just underneath the launch pad at facilities for all of the exhaust to come out when the engines are ignited. It's making sure basically that everything is performing normally. Um, and so I'm going to kind of follow up and just check and see if there's anything that's going to be happening with um, SLS in the coming days um, as far as like any type of testing being done. But um, yeah, anyway, big news. You probably have heard about it. Maybe you haven't, but it had its rollout yesterday. A uh, ton of media coverage about it. Super, super exciting. This is literally a moment in history if these missions end up being successful with bringing people to the moon and possibly possibly even Mars. Um, but uh, with all that being said, um, I was kind of a little bit sparked the interest of kind of what it would cost to launch this vehicle. 
because uh, we kind of gotten used to sort of SpaceX kind of taking the gold medal lately of the rocket rocket industry, right? He has um, the Falcon 9, fully reusable. Um, well, maybe not fully reusable. I think there's still compartments of it that need to be replaced. Uh, the engines probably have to eventually start to be replaced after a few missions. But for the most part, the engine, uh, the, the, the rocket, once it, the first booster lands, it's able to then be, you know, checked on and then ready for launch again. Basically the concept of an airplane, being able to just sort of bring the airplane into the airport, just sort of refuel it up, you know, re-put re all the food back on clean it up, make sure it's ready to go and then launch it again. And so now with, with SpaceX kind of changing the game there, I think with really saying, okay, we can not only reuse like a part of the rocket, but like the majority of the rocket that kind of puts things like the SLS at a disadvantage. And a big reason for that is because a lot of the space launch system, the SLS, the rocket that I'm talking about, kind of orange and white in color, um, ends up not being fully reusable. Uh, and so I, I dug up a bunch of research. I'm going to kind of read some numbers to you guys to sort of compare to uh, modern day rockets, also compare to the space shuttle. And this was sort of something that happened uh, with the space shuttle program. So a while back, um, when the space shuttle was first thought up of, it was like, okay, let's try to make this reusable. Um, let's, you know, launch people to low earth orbit, bring people to the international space station, do a bunch of research in space and then come back down. And that ended up, uh, not saving as much money as a lot of, uh, people were really hoping for. The NASA advisory council was really hopeful, hopeful for, um, that's actually a specific quote from Wayne Hale, which was a former manager of NASA space, NASA space shuttle program says it was a very complicated vehicle that took an awful lot of refurbishment to get it to fly again. The shuttle's main engines ended up having to be replaced after like only a few launches. The vehicle also needed lots of inspections and repairs between missions. I was reading this up on the verge. So if you guys want to check out that article afterwards, I'll make sure to link it in our caption too. Um, and then basically altogether, it ended up uh, driving up the cost of each space shuttle mission to somewhere between $450 million to $1.5 billion per launch. So when you're trying to look for reusability and you're trying to bring costs down for not only you know people to send missions to space, like send supplies, send satellites, um, send scientific research, that's where the contracts come in for rocket companies. Uh, they want to be able to land contracts with either uh, big corporations or maybe universities that want to stand up a CubeSat, but that's going to cost you know a certain price tag in order to do that because the launch vehicle is expensive to launch. Just think about a car as well. For a car, you need to pay for the fuel, you need to pay for the you know the purchase of the car itself, um, but. Can it eventually reach a point where the car starts to pay itself off or it starts, you know, you, you, you pay, pay off the entire car, you have it, but then what starts to happen is it gets worn down. You know, you put mileage on it. Um, you know, you get a flat tire, you have to replace the tire. Uh, you, you know, maybe there like an accident happens and you, and you have to like, you know, f fix the door or whatever it is. And so all this starts to add up. And so when it comes to rockets, you have to try and keep all of this into consideration as well. Uh, which is why it's very um, it's it's very probable that launches get delayed a lot of times too because you have to make sure the conditions are right. You don't want to take a huge risk with a launch if you know 
there's like really bad weather rolling in because like you have not only the rocket that could get completely damaged, but all the payload that sits in the top of the rocket in uh, the nose cone or the, or the payload. The nose cone is, is uh, kind of like an eggshell that, that, that sort of encapsulates the, um, the payload. So the satellite or the like dragon capsule, for instance, so the people could also be in there. That's the very top of the rocket. And you have to also keep, yeah, keep that stuff safe, whether it's people or it's um, satellites, because now you also have contracts. So you have contractors who are relying on your rocket performing uh, nominally, per, uh, doing a really good job. So this is also a consideration. Um, so now let, let's kind of jump into, so now we, we understand a little bit about the space shuttle program and how, you know, the goal with that was to try to make it reusable. So why in the world is NASA building, or did they build this, this space launch system? Well, starting kind of with, uh, let's just talk about some metrics here. Um, so it, is supposedly supposed to be the most powerful rocket if it does lift off, uh, producing 8.4 million pounds of thrust at liftoff. Uh, compare that to Starship, um, that when that happens, that should be more powerful than the space launch system. And that's the big debate here, is once Starship, SpaceX's new rocket that's being built in Boca Chica, Texas, once that launches, is it essentially going to put the SLS out of business. And that's because it's supposed to be generating around 17 million pounds of thrust at liftoff. 17 million, SLS 8.4 million. So you already got that gap. Um, but until that happens, uh, if SLS does launch before spaceship, a starship, then it should become, you know, ha have at least that, that name tag for a bit that it's the most powerful rocket. Um, I was just curious about how does that compare to the Falcon Heavy? Because the Falcon Heavy is a very, very powerful launch vehicle. Um, it is a heavy lift rocket. It's only launched once. It was a demo mission a couple years ago. It's what launched that red Tesla Roadster into space. That produces around 5 million pounds of thrust at liftoff. So less than what the SLS would produce. So now we've kind of got this, this sort of comparison going on, uh, which, by the way, the uh, 5 million pounds of thrust that lift off for the Falcon Heavy is approximately equal to 18 747 aircraft at full power. So imagine 18 of those 747 aircraft at full power. That's about equivalent to what this thrust is that's being produced for the Falcon Heavy. Um, Let's see. So if you guys wanted to know a little bit about kind of now how this compares to the Saturn V, which is what was used during the Apollo missions, um, the SLS space launch system, the one that's being used for Artemis, the one that just rolled out yesterday, uh, should be about 15% more powerful than the Saturn V. So should be, should be, you know, producing a little bit more than what the Saturn V did about 15% more. Um, so with all this, this power and all this thrust, how much is it going to cost? Well, let's start with uh, way back in 2012, right when the space launch system was announced. Uh, NASA estimated that each mission would cost about $500 million. So that's each mission. So that uh, that was originally when the, the target debut was supposed to be 2017. Then in 2014, uh, the NASA, um, NASA then ended up saying that, well, uh, now that we, we're starting to develop the rocket, it should cost about $7 billion 
for its first launch. So now we've jumped from 500 million to about 7 billion um, of what, what basically would, would be spent um, for the rocket alone. Um, then it eventually uh, then said, okay, well, to develop the rocket should be somewhere around 11 billion. Now that the rocket's developed, how much did NASA spend? It's been about 30, $30 billion that's been spent alone to develop the space launch system. So 30 billion. So with that number, uh, keeping kind of that in mind, um, how should this, like how many missions would it take to start to actually pay it off? Right. Um, so the most recent quote of how much they said that it should probably cost now to launch the most recent, recent quote is roughly $4.1 billion. So $4.1 billion from the original quote back in 2012, which was 500 million and the, the rocket costing about 30 billion. So, so let me pull up a calculator here and do this math real quick. Um, so if we've got 4 billion, so let's go ahead and do 30 divided by four. Okay. So somewhere around seven, about seven missions, uh, it, it might be able to start to pay itself off. Now, I don't know how many missions are planned with the space launch system. The Artemis mission alone, um, there are a total plans of at least three trips. There's Artemis one, which is going to be what brings, um, just the, the, the rocket itself with the Orion capsule on top of the rocket to the lunar orbit. Then there's going to be a second mission, which would be bringing then probably a lunar rover or a lander, some type of machinery, some type of uh, like robotic mission to then land on the moon, sort of set us up. And then the third mission, I believe, is what would then be bringing the people there. This is from the last time that I had checked the three different Artemis missions. There's some really great infographics online if you ever want to check it out. So these are the, the, the three main goals, the three main Artemis missions, Artemis one, Artemis two, Artemis three. And so if, you know, there's been a lot of delays. So, so it's been a bit of, um, you know, about, about 10 years, um, of, of this development about a decade now. Um, and if it kind of continues maybe at that rate, hopefully it's going to start to move forward now that we've got the rocket, then it should start to actually get closer and closer to this launch date of being maybe within the next, you know, two, I'm hopeful to more like five years of, of launching their first mission, um, to the moon. Um, as far as the, the quoted date, I know the goal was originally 2024, not too sure on where that's at right now. Um, but again, it, it, if it does end up happening, especially before Starship at, at Boca Chica is getting developed, then it might actually end up being way ahead of the game for, um, you know, for, for SpaceX to come along with, with Starship and say, okay, well here, now we got this, uh, you're going to cut your cost, but space launch systems already launching. Maybe it's landed new contractors. So maybe it's already, uh, you know, kind of, kind of set in its, in its mission. But I do think, and a lot of people do think that once Starship starts to launch, it's going to be what's going to sort of take over a lot of the, the missions to the moon. There are partnerships between NASA and SpaceX quite a lot. In fact, um, there is a, a goal for Starship Lunar. I'm actually looking at a 3D printed model right now on my desk. Um, 
which is partnered with the Artemis mission. So that is another possibility, especially because the goal of it is to actually have a lot of people on board. Um, inside, it's really cool if you ever get to look at a kind of cutout model of Starship is it's supposed to have room for, for about 20 passengers, uh, maybe even more. And so that is something that is widely beneficial as opposed to the sort of older model, which is the approach that SLS took, Space Launch System. It kind of took this older model approach where there is the Orion capsule up on top, a little bit smaller, a little bit more confined, and then the super, super powerful, powerful rocket underneath it. The two massive solid rocket boosters on the side, um, that central booster right in the middle, which is the, the first stage. And when all of it deploys, the goal is for it to, you know, land here on earth, most likely fall into the ocean, probably go get collected, try to see what can be refurbished and what has to be thrown away. And I think for the most part, a lot of it's going to end up not being, uh, reused. Um, also by the way, uh, picnic. Hello. Awesome. So happy to see you commenting in the chat, by the way, if you guys ever want to leave any comments or questions, you can use the chat feature. Um, otherwise you can also tap the call in button and call in and say hello says, Hey, it would be interesting on future episodes to talk more about solar sails and other technology for lowering costs to various orbits. That is a very interesting thing. Um, I have a minimal about amount of knowledge on solar sails. Mainly I know about it through the planetary society because I know the planetary society was developing a solar sail. Um, there's also, I think, a, a drag sail, I think it's called, where it deploys a massive net to help try and collect dead satellites. Um, this way, uh, you don't have like the cemetery orbit. I think it's called graveyard, graveyard orbit, where a lot of, uh, you know, satellites who ended their missions end up going to. Um, and there's a lot of space junk, causes a lot of space junk. So, um, that's a little bit of, of what I know, but for sure, future episodes, I will look into it. It seems like uh, very hot topics tend to be uh, rockets and rocket science. So I'll look into it a lot more for sure. And yes, wow, crazy increase in costs. Um, it does seem that SpaceX and others are going to get rid of government systems from NASA, etc. Yeah, I do still think that they're going to be around for the most part. Um, I do think that just because, uh, well, uh I mean, I just think it sort of makes sense to sort of have both entities existing, both the, like privatization of space, but also both the public governmental aspect of space. Um, and I think that that's kind of how it is. I think in a lot of other countries as well, there tends to be like one sort of primary space program a lot of people affiliate with the country with. So, so JAXA, Japanese Space Agency, ISRO, Indian Space Agency, ISRO, um, Canadian Space Agency. And, and so I do think it's, it's beneficial to have both, uh, for, for several reasons too, is, is, you know, that you do also have the public interest in it, uh, because of also, I guess that direct relation of, of public taxpayer dollars, um, as well. Okay. Let's move forward in some other notes that I have here. Okay. So I was reading a, an article in universe today, uh, that was saying, according to a NASA inspector general, the, um, the tune would be about $4.1 billion to launch, as we mentioned. So it's about more than double of what the original expected launch of cost was. That brings it to about $58,000 per kilogram to launch the low earth orbit. If it's, you know, if the expected payload weighs, uh, are, are to be believed. So, so it, depending on kind of the weight of what the expected payload would be. So why is it so much per kilogram? Uh, well, one thing is, as we mentioned, it's the fuel, 
It's the cost of the rocket. You know, it's like if you, if, if you spent so much money designing a t-shirt and then you sell it, you know, if you spent like a hundred dollars to design a t-shirt, you don't want to sell it for a dollar. You want to try and get some profit back. So I think that might be a big reason why, uh, it, they're caught, they're, they're charging this much probably, uh, or it's costing this much to launch. Um, is, and also what they would charge for, for contracts, uh, for those who want to launch a satellite or put anything in their own payload. But also to the fuel, the fuel, the, the, the redeveloping of materials of the rocket. As we mentioned, it's not a lot of the components of it aren't reusable. Um, and so a lot of that has to be re- redeveloped. Uh, extra engines, extra solid rocket boosters, um, the fuel, of course, and also all the people. Let's not forget about all the employees as well who have jobs, who are working. They have to be paid as, too, as well. So there's a lot that goes into this. Um, now, what's, what's interesting here that I was like totally blown away, I was also reading in this universe today um, article, which I will also link at the end of this, today's episode in the caption, is what Starship, so going back to SpaceX, SpaceX's Starship. Um, oh, actually, I will read that in a second because I see we've got a caller from Mario. All right. Hello, Mario. How's it going? Hi. Hello. Just uh, retired. Just got back from the gym. Oh, yeah. nice. Nice. Yeah. Got a question? Uh, yeah, no, actually, um, a point I wanted to bring to bring up pretty quick, you know, just in this whole discussion about, oh, you know, how SpaceX, you know, being a private company is going to, you know, if it's going to supersede or reduce the our dependence on, like, you know, our NASA being a government system. A point that we need to remember is that SpaceX is a private company. They're going to be profit-driven. That's the reality. They're going to be profit-driven. And a lot of times the science that isn't immediately seen as profit driven ends up being very useful. So we have to remember that when we, you know, become dependent on, on private companies, it's mm-hmm. not all, there will be, they will be driven by profit. And sometimes what's best isn't always profit driven. So, you know, that's just a quick point I want to bring up. Yeah, no, that's, that's such a good point. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and I think that like, if we ever were to like, you know, you, Mario, me, anyone here in the chat, if we ever were to start up a company, we would kind of realize that, well, if we want to sort of make this dream come true, whatever it is. So for Elon, it's, you know, seeing people on Mars um, and getting people to space and making us little humanity, a multi-planetary species. Um, and he's going the privatization route. You can't let the company die. And so if you can't let the company die, you are going to be profit-driven because then you're not going to have investors and you're not going to have money to fund your dream or fund your mission for not just yourself, but all of humanity, what your greater goal is. And that is my more optimistic view. Um, I know that there is a more like negative view, which is more so like, well, they just want all the money for themselves. And although that happens in some cases with companies, I'm not going to deny that at all. I think that there is a much bigger mission here, um, specifically with, with SpaceX, that and Tesla that is trying to completely change the game of how humanity acts fundamentally. So like the electric cars, for instance, to really start to combat pollution and climate change, as opposed to, um, you know, maybe, maybe making a uh, more of a nonprofit where there won't be as much funding or there won't be as much to really do the things that need to be done, develop the things that need to be done, getting the greatest minds together, the engineers to make this stuff possible. So I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because I think that there's um, a different way uh, we could we could look at this stuff for yeah. sure. So yeah. thanks for thanks for that. Oh, well, you're welcome. And, and and that was a very good perspective you shared. It's a it's a very nice way of putting it. It's I'm gonna have to write that one down. Awesome! Yay! 
All right. Well, thank you, Varya. Okay. So we see, I got another comment that says, well, Russia will probably not have, not anytime soon rely mostly on SpaceX rockets or similar particular. Yeah. So an interesting thing about that is before, um, before the crew dragon capsule, uh, which is, uh, you know, SpaceX developed capsule, um, which is now being used with NASA to launch NASA astronauts to the space station. Uh, we used to, as, as a country, pay somewhere roughly around $81 million for one seat, one way to the space station for one of our astronauts. And that was to fly on, on the Russian Soyuz capsule. Um, and uh, now it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more so, I think, I don't remember how much it costs generally, but that cost is not directly coming from, like, from NASA. I don't, I don't believe anymore. It's more so like now that it's a partnership, it's like, okay, let's actually pay to have this vehicle uh, operate as opposed to let's just pay for the seat. So it's a little bit of a different transaction. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting point. Uh, picnic. I think that, uh, I almost wonder if, yeah, there's going to be several other nations and I'm sure this is going to happen that are going to use the crew dragon. And I think there already have been, I haven't tracked the last few crew dragon launches. Um, but it might've been, uh, like that already where there's, there's been other countries that have used it. Then we've got another comment. Uh, James Webb is not profit-based in particular, obviously, for instance. Um, yeah, James Webb, and that's like a very largely international, uh, internationally developed uh, t- uh, satellite or telescope, telescope satellite, space, space telescope. Um, and that's another thing. And, and it's, it's taking you know, resources from several different countries and, and employees from several different countries to come together to develop it. The first time I heard about James Webb was, um, I think it was 2014. I was at the Intrepid Museum in New York, giant aircraft carrier, huge Navy ship. And um, I was interviewing uh, one of the engineers on James Webb and, and she was actually Argentinian based. So that was really the first time that I was like, wow, like this is so cool. Like the first person I'm speaking to on this mission, working with NASA, she's actually like, you know, representing a completely different country, not the US. And that's when I started like learning about all the different contributors worldwide to this one specific space telescope, which is really cool. And, and there's a ton of missions that are, that are like that, that are examples. Um, and, and that's another component too of, of the Artemis mission is they have a, I think it's called a, like a, uh, a commercial no, a commercial program. I don't exactly remember the name, but it's basically a specific program for Artemis where there's tons of different nations involved to have a, a part in the mission going to the moon. So whether it's through supplying um, like different materials or maybe their own lander on the moon or their own, um, maybe like there's some engineers that are also from the country that are working on the Artemis mission. There is a huge program about around it that uh, allows for all of this for international collaboration, which is the whole point. I mean, if we're if we're going to the moon, we're going as as a you know as a species, a species, or we're all of humanity. And so I think that's really awesome that that is what's being done with the Artemis mission. Um, so let's kind of do a little bit more uh, comparison here. So uh, what's interesting that I found, as I mentioned, the space launch system should cost somewhere around $58,000 per kilogram to launch to low earth orbit and starship. The current quote is going to be $10. 
I was like, just totally, I mean, when I read this, this was, this was in universe today. It was, and I believe it was actually a quote from Elon specifically, but the estimate is, the estimate is to be somewhere down to about $10 per kilogram for a launch. Um, and it has about 30% larger payload capacity. So like a larger, a larger area of space for a payload than the space launch system. So that's another thing again, to sort of keep in mind, but again, it's, it's, it's this sort of thing where it's like, for sure, comparisons happen, right? Like we're, 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 that's literally what this episode's about. We're comparing different things, but I think it's a good thing. I think that like, that's why there should be these different innovations, these different ways of looking at things. Um, cause they, you know, for so long, uh, like I think a lot of people in the aerospace industry were saying like, it's not possible to land a rocket. Like you can't make it reusable. It's just not possible. And, and then it obviously like was proven wrong and parts of the rocket are able to land completely autonomously, uh, with SpaceX. And, and I think that's a really exciting thing. And then since it was then made possible, now there's other space companies that are trying to follow in those footsteps. And that's really, really cool. Um, for another example is, is Ariane space, uh, French space agency, the Ariane six rocket is going to be partly reusable as well. And they're also working on this technology. Um, I think also rocket lab is working on this technology. Relativity space is, is a 3d printed rocket, 100% 3d printed rocket. You have to check out relativity space. I should bring on actually the CEO for an interview. Um, I got to interview him for, um, South by Southwest a couple years ago. And I think you guys would really enjoy, uh, hearing from him. So I'm, I'm going to make a note of that actually to reach out to them to relativity space. Yeah. Really cool. Uh, you should definitely check them out. 3d printed rocket company. Um, and that's another thing too. It's like, what, you know, like what can, what can humanity think of next? Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of the exciting thing about all this. Uh, looks like we've got a caller, Nicholas, you are on the mic. What is up? Oh, Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, uh, yeah. I thought I'd mention another company that came to mind as you're talking and I believe the name is A-E-V-U-M. I'm not sure how they say it, uh, pronounce it, but it's Ava, maybe? You've heard of that, perhaps? Um, A-E-U-V-U-M, I believe. Let me double check while I'm looking it up, too. Avum Space. Avum Space? Avum Space. I'm seeing... Like album space company, oh. I know it's. Uh, did you find it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a uh, e v u m, and they are doing drone. Um, so it's similar to Earth orbit, but they use drones that can fly higher and are much more automated than uh, Virgin Orbit. Ah, oh, that's so cool! I found it. Autonomous transport services. Um. And they're doing space transport missions. How cool. Okay, I'm, I'm on their website right now. I did not hear about them until now. So th- thank you for sharing that. This yeah, is... Let me write it into the comments so that uh, if anyone else is... I... Yeah. yeah. Uh, this, this is really, really cool. If you guys want to check out the website, yeah, I'll, I'll also attach it in the caption after this episode is published. Um, that's a very interesting approach, I think, because... Uh, I think we all started hearing about uh, VTOLs, so vertical takeoff landing, which would be like like Uber was investing in this for a while to basically come up with new ways of transportation for people here on Earth. 
kind of like the, the, the Jetsons. So think about the Jetsons, literally flying cars. Um, and it seems like this company is also working on that, but now they're also working on yeah, space transport missions. So um, I'll look more into this. This is, this is really, really interesting. So part, um, of their, part of their interesting, part of their business model is that um, if you want to launch something immediately, you pay more. And then probably if you could wait, you know, a few weeks or more until you want to launch, you know, m- most people are planning like a year in advance, but they're like, if you wait six weeks, we'll give you a good price. And then even more interesting in their business model is that they can use it for um, organ donation and other, you know, high cost, but time sensitive things if they don't need that vehicle right at the moment for a satellite launch. So they can use it for other high value um, uh, transportation issues here on Earth, such as as organ donation. Um, And so, yeah, it's very ambitious, but if they can get running um, soon, which it sounds, you know, feasible, then a lot of the technology is already proven in terms of uh, military drones, frankly, or it's very well proven technology. The main difficulty they're going to have is like uh, that Virgin, only Virgin Orbit and a few others have ever done, I guess, air launch rockets. So dropping a rocket from a plane is it's only a few different organizations have ever done that. So they will be, uh, you know, there are not too many that will have done that. And then of course, they would want to be able to recycle that rocket, and that would be down the line of giving getting 100 uh, percent recycling capability for yeah. that launched rocket. But it's uh, it's exciting, yeah. It, that is really exciting. I'm surprised drones haven't been used even sooner uh, to to do stuff like this because yeah, an autonomous vehicle like a drone um, to just use that to to place a, a satellite in orbit. Um, I'm really surprised that hasn't actually been used before. Um, and I'm reading on the site that it says United States Space Force. So it must be some type of collaboration also with, with the U.S. Space Force. Um, and it, it's, it looks like it's strictly small launch. Um, it says small launch operational normalizer. So I'm guessing it's for like smaller launch, you know, like the uh, payload. So I guess like CubeSats, microsats. Um, so very, and, very tiny satellites. And I think... A- a large part of their business model is sort of hoping that even SpaceX or anyone else who has a lot of satellites up there and can't schedule a normal rocket launch from ground level uh, soon, as soon as they would like, would then be able to. So I think it would be able to carry one Starlink um, satellite, perhaps. Or, uh, yes. The goal is to be able to carry something. And so they can carry even, you know, repairs or replacements for any satellite you can imagine. And then if you would wait a few weeks, you know, you pay less. Or if you wanted it launched later today or tomorrow, then you pay a lot of money. And then that's where their profit comes from. And then they can do, you know, fly uh, people's organ donations around and other things like that um, for low cost to free. And uh, uh, because they have that high value customer who needs uh, needs immediate launches to uh, fix and replace um uh, critical satellites, including military, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. What, what a great approach too. Cause yeah, you're right. I, I didn't even think about the timestamp basically when you want to do a sort of standard launch, like reach out to a, you know, a, a space launch company, um, you know, like SpaceX or, or like, uh, you know, launch Alliance or all these other, other companies, you have to sort of like, you know, talk to them what you want to launch, 
then you have to sort of like get together your payload. You have to, you know, put up a contract and then have an estimation for when it's going to launch. And this, um, having something that's more like quick and short, like notice, uh, uh yeah, I'm, I'm glad someone came up with this. I'm going to reach out to them. I'm in the are about page right now. Um, see if maybe I can, I can get the, the, the CEO is for, uh, on here for an interview because it says also they, um, had won a, uh, the Google lunar X prize, um, as well, wow, which is, okay. which is really exciting. Yeah. Wow. 1.25 million. Um, and then he's all the, the J the, the, the CEO, the founders worked with, um, looks like NASA and, uh, propulsion systems integration at Boeing. Uh, yeah. So it looks, looks really, really cool. So thank you for sharing that. Oh yeah, no problem. Glad to do it. Um, it's exciting. And I hope that you definitely get, uh, their CEO or maybe somebody, uh, deep in their organization who's going to concentrate on the, the, the d- most difficult part might be sort of the air launch and proposal, uh, propulsion and recyclability. So it'd be interesting to get maybe a very in, uh, engineering focused person who reports to the CEO maybe, or whoever. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Exciting. I hope you're able to do that. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, thank you, Nicholas. Thanks for coming thank on and sharing that. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Have a good one. You too. Uh, that's so cool. Yeah. So, so I, I thought of something else while Nicholas was mentioning um, Virgin Orbit and and uh, the way Virgin Galactic also launches. I got to find out a little bit more about Virgin Orbit. But um, so Virgin Galactic launches with these sort of looks like a double airplane. So two airplanes that are connected by one central wing. And in that central wing is Spaceship One or Spaceship Two. And um, once they reach a certain altitude, uh, I don't exactly know what the altitude is. I'll, I'll double check. We'll do a future episode about Virgin Galactic another time. But it reaches a certain altitude and it deploys the spaceship where there's people inside. And then that's what then will you know go at like Mach 3, three times the speed of sound. That's what Mach is, in case you didn't know. M-A-C-H, Mach 3. Um, and then they'll bring it up to space. And that'll bring it you know just past the, the stratosphere. Um, Technically, it doesn't go past the Carmen line, but you know, which is which is supposed to be the sort of uh, international understanding of where the the limit is of you know going from Earth to space. Uh, but but it's you know you still see the curvature of Earth and you're still in space, and so I, I would say that you're still experiencing um, being in space. And it and it's so incredible from like what I've seen from the launches, and it looks really really great. And uh, that's that's another approach, and I think that's also a more um, comfortable approach for a lot of people, especially you know if we're going into space tourism, because we all maybe all of us here have been on an airplane before. Uh, you know if you if you have, go ahead and send me a little emoji. Um, and so we're more comfortable with that. But we're not fully comfortable being at a 90 degree angle shooting up in this rocket that's rattling and shaking all the time. And, and that can be a little strange unless maybe we go on roller coasters often. Um, and so it's, I think it's a little more encouraging to, to get people to space. And so I love that this company that Nicholas mentioned is kind of taking almost a similar approach, but with drones and to not have people on it, but instead to have, you know, different cargo, which is super cool. Um, okay. So just a couple more things. I know that we're, we're, you're kind of just, we're just kind of going on today with, with this episode a little bit longer than usual. And I, I'm happy with it. If you guys are happy with it and you guys are here. Um, but a few more stats I really, really wanted to read to you guys was, um, for, let's see. So, so some of the other, uh, upcoming costs. So we spoke about kind of, you know, the, the overall cost of, of what it's probably going to be to um, launch 
the SLS, which is, should be somewhere around, you know, $4.1 billion. That's it right now. Uh, if there is more reusability that maybe gets integrated into the rocket, that cost might come down. Um, I think it might be possible. Um, but then we also kind of go into, let's see, uh, you know, thinking about again, the, the Falcon nine rocket, um, that's, that's somewhere around, you know, $60 million to make it $200,000 to fuel it. And, um, you know, and, and so basically it's at such a low price point that this is why it's launching so much. If you guys have ever listened to an episode here on space talk, where we talk about what launches are upcoming, um, you'll hear me mention a lot of SpaceX launches, and that's just like the really big benefit of of making something that is you know reusable over and over again. It, it's you know it's kind of like if you go to your favorite smoothie bar or coffee shop and they give you you know a a ten percent discount if you bring in your own reusable cup. It's you know that I think there's a lot of perk to having reusability. Uh, it's not just about the prices coming down, but it's also just overall really good too for for our environment. Um, and, and then it, I think it just makes it more accessible to, to a lot of people because although the space launch system is mighty and powerful and it's going to be, I think a really great launch vehicle. Like if you, if, when it launches, if you get to be able to go to the launch, I'll make sure to, I announce it the time, the date, as soon as it comes out, we should for sure try to go catch that launch because I think that regardless of how much it'll cost, it's going to be a big turning point for humanity and for the space industry. Um, and I think that's going to be really exciting. But that being said, I think that it's also really exciting that there are these other space companies that have different, um, different components that have different price tags. And so maybe you and I won't launch on the space launch system, but maybe you and I will launch on, you know, Starship one day because the more the price comes down, the more accessible it'll be to a lot of other people. So just like flying an airplane, when the airplane was first, you know, commercialized and was more available to the public, it was really, really expensive. Only the very wealthy could fly. And, you know, everyone who couldn't afford it, it was like was something you couldn't even think of. You're like, I wouldn't go up in the air. Like I can't go up in the air. I can't fly to another country. Like that's not possible. And and that dream quickly changed as soon as, you know, developers and engineers started finding ways to bring the cost down. And so I think, and a lot of people, I think that this way too, especially in the space industry, is that that's the path we're aiming for, we're striving for, is to just try and make it more accessible so that more people could actually eventually go to space. Um, so I guess that's, that's sort of about everything I was going to mention. I see we got another caller, so I'm going to go ahead and ask Joshua to unmute himself. Hello, you are on the mic, Joshua. What's up? All right. So I'm going to take a big risk here. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if this is possible. Um, I haven't done all the research. I know there's research being done, especially by Oregon State University's Hemp Institute regarding the long-term uses of industrial hemp. Um, I wonder if there's a combination between something that is a regenerative crop um, that can be grown um, and is better for the environment, does carbon sequestration, that could also be combined with the polymer um, that could then be a lightweight, strong, insulated material um, that also uh, essentially 3D print rockets. Um, 
Okay, wait. I was following at first because did you mention a crop, like some kind of some kind of like food item that can also be an insulator? Hemp. 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 And how? And so then hemp could also be used to three D print rocket as well. Like it can be, I guess, because it's used for clothing, so it could also be used for for uh, is as like three D printing thread. Yes. Also, wow. I mean, uh, no, I mean there is. There is research, I believe, out of Texas, if I remember correctly, um, regarding whether or not it can be used for chips as well. And uh, hempcrete for data centers. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not spitballing here, but I haven't done all the research. I do not have all the sources. Okay. Uh, I actually decided to Google that real quick, and I found um, Shapeways. Shapeways.com. I don't know if that rings a bell. It says 3D printing services in Texas. Um, and this was when I also typed in hemp. So I'll look into that a little bit. That that does sound really interesting. And it sounds like why not, right? Because hemp is used for clothing. It's used as food, as protein powder. Um, what was the other thing? So it can also be used as insulator you were mentioning? You might know more than I do. Based, uh, based on the research I've done, it has better insulation properties than the synthetic insulation that we make now for everything that is detrimental to the environment and also has asbestos in it in the past is now in housing. Wow. And, and so, and I did just find it, hemp can be transformed in a filament to be used for 3D printing. Biodegradable, recyclable, and free from toxins, it can replace petroleum-based plastics. The material has a higher impact resistance than regular PLA. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, maybe it's petroleum-based plastics. Uh, I'm not sure. Bioplastic made using hemp is fully biodegradable and compostable. This is on biovoices.eu. Um, that's really cool. I did not know about this. <laughs> Thank you for coming on and sharing that, Joshua. Uh, and that's, a, that's, a, that's such an interesting point because petroleum which is, you know, a natural resource coming from the earth is what's actually used to make polyester in a lot of our fabrics. Um, I didn't realize this until sometime during COVID. And I was like, oh, huh. I, I, I actually, I didn't know that that's, that's what was, was used to make polyester. Um, uh, I really shocked. I didn't learn that sooner, maybe in, in, a, in a class, but uh, that really sort of transformed the way that I consciously shop now more so aim for 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 cotton but i don't i don't think i've ever owned anything that was made from hemp and this is so interesting to think about if if say there's a like there's a big mission to mars and um you know there's 3d printed uh, 3d printers that are built into maybe some of the mars landers or rovers and then to use hemp especially if as josh was mentioning it is good for uh like thermal protection or it's really good for insulation um i almost wonder if that could be used to build the domes on mars uh because that would be really really great and really helpful because most likely what we're going to see in the evolution of humanity making our way to you know lunar bases and, and martian bases the first step would be having robotic missions there setting up base camp so starting to you know dig and build uh, these these infrastructures that we could live in, and the only material that I was sort of excited about was uh, was silica silicone aerogel silica aerogel, and it's it's this kind of cloud like um, material 
that actually can break off in little shards. So be careful if you ever hold it. I got to hold it once at, um, it was at a, a Gosh, it was for the launch of the InSight lander to Mars, which is what detects the Mars quakes. So this was at Vandenberg Air Force Base in, um, in, in, in California. This is for a NASA mission. And that's what's so special about the silica aerogel is, um, it creates an artificial greenhouse effect. So, well, it actually creates an art, a greenhouse effect, but artificially rather than, you know, us, you know, emitting carbon dioxide and maybe intentionally on, on the planet to then create a warming effect. This silica aerogel does it naturally, kind of like a greenhouse, like where you'd have plants in it, traps in the heat and the radiation from the sun. It allows for sunlight to pass through. It even diffracts sunlight, creating an artificial sunset, which could be really good to sort of psychologically get people to adjust to maybe living on Mars or, or on the moon. Um, because, you know, I mean, who doesn't love a sunset, who isn't used to sort of seeing the sun, you know, every day. And it, it looks very different when you don't have an atmosphere, like on the moon, or you have a very thin atmosphere like you do on Mars. Um, but hemp, that's interesting. Uh, that, that's really cool. Uh, if you guys want to look this up, I'm looking at this really crazy photo of a 3d printer printing like an egg shape, uh, using hemp filaments, which is so, so interesting. Um, and this is on biovoices.eu. Once again, I'll make sure to share all of this in the caption. Um, but yeah, but that is about everything. Thank you so much for coming on Joshua and, and sharing that with us. Um, and thank you to also, you know, Nicholas who came on and, and Mario who came on. If anyone else wants to join, um, you can tap that call in button. If you want to ask anything or maybe leave a comment, looks like we got a caller. All right. Jay mile, you are on the mic. What's up? You could tap the unmute button. Not sure if you're talking. Bottom right of your screen. All right, there we go. I think you're unmuted now. Can you hear me? Um, hold on just a second. I've got too much technology going on here. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I do ever hear a little bit of feedback of myself. Yeah. Alrighty. Um, all righty. All right, well, just give him a moment. Yes. All right. Yes, I can all hear you. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Normally, I do that while I'm uh, in the queue, but you uh, took my call right away, and I was not prepared for it. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Oh, what's up? Um, I was just um, wanted to piggyback on uh, the last caller uh, talking about hemp. Mm -hmm. um, a, a buddy of mine is into material science, and he says that there's stuff all over the natural world that we're just sort of reaching the point that we can start manufacturing it. So everything from hemp to uh, spider silk to all sorts of natural structures are uh, just going to revolutionize, yeah, revolutionize the way that we can uh, construct uh, environments and materials. Yeah. Yeah, for I mean, for, for sure. What 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 was some of the stuff that your friend shared? Was there anything like any specific example of of something that maybe we just sort of came upon it, as a species? It's way beyond an English major, man. Uh he was uh, <laughs> he was building 
these battery he was growing batteries in a giant tank in a warehouse up behind the university mm-hmm. um it it looked like something out of a meth lab but yeah swore that it was going to uh create the sort of capacity we need to get a solar grid running um so that you don't have the off peak hour issue oh wow yeah i think wow. yeah i think anything with like solar energy would just be really interesting um i think there's still so much un, un, un not understood so many things that are not understood about uh when it comes to solar energy and how you could really start to kind of uh conserve and use the energy that comes from our host star i think it's like still a very unexplored field um is is like solar physics uh, that that's so interesting. I, I would love to. I'm so intrigued now. I wanna I wanna learn more. But <laughs> absolutely, I, that, that, there's only a one thing I don't um, want to learn with uh, solar, and that is, you know, if I could get up there to the moon or Mars, I wouldn't need artificial sunsets. That is the one circumstance where I wouldn't miss a sunset. Oh, really? You wouldn't miss a sunset? Why is that? Because I'd be living on freaking Mars. <laughs> something new to look at. Uh, thank uh, you so much for taking my call. Of course. Thank you, Jay Mile. Oh, such a good point um, that, that, that he made. Yeah, you'd be on Mars. And so you wouldn't, you wouldn't miss a sunset. It's all about a different experience and a new experience. Um, awesome. It looks like we've got a new caller. In. Oh, never mind. Uh, oh, there he is. Okay, Donald, I am ready to take your call if you are ready to hit the unmute button. You're on the mic. Yeah, hi. Uh, Hello. Yeah, How's joined, it going? Hi, I just, I just joined a few seconds ago, but and, and I'm an eternal <laughs> optimist, okay? I'm a, I'm a glass half full, but it just occurred to me that, you know, spider web, spider silk is some of the strongest stuff. You know, back in the colonial days, it was required for farmers to grow hemp because it was the strongest fiber to use for sales. And so you were actually required to grow hemp. Uh, but of course... If that happened on a full scale, my, you know, my whole political uh, philosophy is we're not going to take down, you know, the corporations. We just need to build our own system next to it, you know, with worker co-ops, et cetera. We're not going to destroy them, but let's just build our own. You know what would happen, of course, they would say, no, natural stuff uh, is potentially dangerous. Spiders can bite. And, you know, hemp is, a, you know, of course, we're going to legalize pot, but they'll find some reason to say, no, these natural things, because you can't monetize it, which frankly, I think is a big reason that marijuana, I think pharmacologists know that it's a, it's a miracle drug. So it's kept illegal for that reason. And you can obviously grow it in your house. So I, I wonder what would happen if we started coming up with all these ways to, you know, to do things in, in using the natural world. Uh, they'd, they'd outlaw it immediately, I suppose. But the, the, the idea is wonderful. I just wanted to throw that out there. I don't mean to be I yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I completely agree with you as far as like being, I try to be as optimistic as possible too. However, we use silkworms to, to make silk and that, that became very, very profitable, right? That, that became a, a luxury is, is silk. Um, and I don't exactly know what, what, what the silkworms do to, to sort of, I'm looking at images right now. Cause I was like, I don't exactly know what silkworms do. I just know that we get silk from these little organisms. Um, so that's kind of an example too, I would think about, you know, with like the spider's web, it's, hmm, I wonder if we would do a, a similar approach with the spider's web. Cause if it's this really strong material, you know, why not, uh, you know, 
potentially approach using that uh, well, when we're already kind of using these these sort of little little worms. Um, but I also wonder where the moral debate comes in, right? Like, where do we draw the line with saying, oh, we're, we're kind of using these, these insects and these species uh, that do they have consciousness? What's their level of consciousness to, to develop something for, for us humans? Um, that's interesting, too, about the, the hemp thing. I didn't realize it was uh, something that was actually enforced during the colonial times to, to uh, mine or not mine, uh, but to, to, to harvest. Um, yeah. That's so interesting. So I almost yeah. wonder why cotton has become so much more preferable over hemp, maybe because it's more, more flexible. Um, but yeah. yeah, yeah, no, interesting thoughts there. I'm glad, I'm glad you called in to, to share that. Um, it looks like we got Joshua calling back as well. So maybe both of you guys could come, come on here and, and talk together. <laughs> okay. I'll just, could I make one more comment, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just very briefly, I don't want to tie up the whole time, of course, but, um, uh, 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 what was I going to say? Never mind. Go to Joshua and put him on, and I'll remember it after he starts talking. I don't want to take up air with you know airtime. Okay. If if um, anything, if in your app there should be a chat feature um, that you should be able to tap on. It looks like a couple different like chat windows, um, like a little chat bubble next to the screen that sort of displays all of our icons. You should see it maybe just underneath the caption. Um, you could always type it in there if if you remember your question again or your comment okay. or just go to Joshua and I'll just, I'll just recall. I'll hang up and call again and then, you know, come back to me later. Maybe if there's enough. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. All righty. Yeah. Okay. Joshua, you are on the mic. What's up? Uh, all right. So I'm one thing. It was also required during world war two. They were called victory gardens. Um, and uh, it was a great mobilization effort from a great, you know, against a great evil at that point, too, which, you know, may ring familiar for some people that are watching anything right now. Um, the other thing is, is the reason that cotton took preference over things like hemp were probably based on slavery. Um, so and there's probably no probably about it. Um, uh, so mm-hmm. those are some things that I mean it's not really nice to look at that reality necessarily for us, but maybe it's time we look at it. So we learn how to do things differently. And it has supposedly about a 12,000 year history hemp. Um, Mm -hmm. If you look back on for uh, evidence of it in ancient civilizations. Okay. I am looking all the stuff up. Victory gardens. I've got all the photos up right now of, of uncle Sam's his, garden to cut food costs. Now I'm looking up with the very first hemp was created. So it says the cultivation of hemp began more than 10,000 years ago um, in the region that we now consider to be Taiwan uh, in the world's first agricultural crops. Early fabric was made from uh, that was woven into clothing from hemp between 8,000 and 7,000 BCE in present day Iraq. So, wow. Thank you for that. <laughs> that, that, that. I'm just, this is a great history lesson. All right. Uh, that, that, was, that was great. Thank you, Joshua. And Donald, I will make you the next caller. All righty. Donald, you are back on the mic. Hi. Uh, actually, Joshua uh, jogged my memory. Speaking of cotton, that was going to be my comment. You know, Eli Whitney, everybody knows the name, but I don't know if people realize just how unbelievably uh, important he was to two things. The first thing he did was he took a box of gun parts, barrels, uh, you know, cylinders, and he said, I'm going to take a random 
you know, one part from each box and I'll put together a gun. Before that, you had to be, yeah, each gun would be different because they didn't have that, you know, the tool and die industry wasn't established. Couldn't get that exact, exact of, uh, you know, measurement, but he was, and he astounded them, you know, uh, so, he, and that was really the forerunner to be able to have mass production where everything was, you know, the same. And so he created the idea of, because he was such a great tool and die guy, you know, great engineer, is that he was able to come up with a, you know, consistency of parts so that they could be interchangeable. And then, of course, he invented the cotton gin, which single-handedly extended slavery for another, what, half a century because of the invention of the cotton gin. So there's another little history oh, gosh. by Whitney. A, a lost but very important figure of history. Wow. Interesting. Wow. Well, thank you, Donald, for coming back in. I'm, I'm glad uh, Josh was able to uh, to to kind of re- re-trigger that, um, that, that remembering. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Donald. Thanks for coming on and sharing that. Thank you. All righty. Yeah. Okay. So we are just about now, uh, just about over an hour. So I'm going to go ahead and start to wrap up today's episode. Um, so I just want to say thank you all so much for all of you guys who called in, um, who had different things to share, different stuff to talk about. Uh, this this conversation has gone from everything for, from the space industry uh, all the way to, to crops and manufacturing, maybe even rockets using uh, using using um, different things we can find here on Earth, different grains and stuff like that. So that ends up being a re- re- really interesting conversation. So thank you guys so much for joining. Um, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. Make sure you get to go outside, do some stargazing, look up at the night sky. And until next time, add Astra.